Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Six months ago, the circle of people who knew eight-year-old Relisha Rudd was relatively small. Her family, her teachers, the workers at the homeless shelter where she'd been staying. But then, suddenly, Relisha's name was everywhere. Searching for this missing eight-year-old girl. Uh, a new video and new revelations about Relisha Rudd. A community gathered to pray for the safe return of Relisha Rudd, the missing eight-year-old girl. Police believe Relisha was kidnapped by Khalil Tatum, a staff member at the shelter. Investigators found Tatum dead of an apparently self-inflicted gunshot wound on March 31st, but Relisha's whereabouts are still unknown. On today's show, we're going to take a closer look at the shelter that housed Relisha Rudd and employed Khalil Tatum. The D.C. General Family Emergency Shelter is situated on the far east end of Capitol Hill, not far from RFK Stadium and Congressional Cemetery. Native Washingtonians will no doubt remember the days when it served as the city's public hospital. And indeed, over the next hour, we'll explore the history of D.C. General as well as the present. We'll also look toward the future and investigate the efforts of city leaders to shut the place down. But we'll begin today's D.C. General Show. So yeah, this is our second floor. In a logical place, I guess. Uh, on this floor, we have uh, 78 families. This is the largest floor. Inside the shelter so, itself. So the, the second floor, 78. Third floor, 50. Fourth floor, 44 families. And the fifth floor, 51. It's Wednesday morning, and I'm being led around the former hospital by Deputy Shelter Director Michael Berry. He's with the Community Partnership for the Prevention of Homelessness. That's the nonprofit the city is contracting to run, D.C. General. What was the total number of staff in the building, you said? Uh, Right now we're at 115, and that's including management, the floor staff, the monitors on the floors, utility workers who are solely responsible for the cleanliness of the facility, uh, case management, and programming staff. Actually, before we carry on with Barry's tour, let's talk about how it looks and feels inside D.C. General. All right, so imagine a bustling hospital. Information and check-in desks buzzing with staffers answering phones, nurses scurrying in and out of patient rooms along brightly lit corridors, the sounds of bleeping, beeping medical equipment and machines filling the air. So imagine all of that and then make it all go away. Or not all of it, actually. The information and check-in desks are still there. They're just empty. The nurses are long gone, but the rooms remain. Only now they contain thin cots, and their glass-paned doors are sealed off with brown paint. The hallways are considerably less crowded, though now they have painted-on names like Destiny Drive, Harmony Lane, and Serenity Lane. As for those medical machines, well, aside from TVs in each floor's community room, the only real machine you'll see is the metal detector in the front lobby, manned by a handful of security guards. The morning I visit D.C. General, Michael Berry says 275 families are living here. But each floor we walk around is pretty quiet. During the day, it's a lot quieter than in the evening. A lot of families are out working, school, or just... Out. Usually get more traffic uh, after four o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> Barry says families typically stay at the facility eight to ten months. DC General can hold 288 families, which he says can mean as many as 960 people. On average, household is about 
a total of four, which can be either two adults and two children or one adult and three children. And they live in the various hallways of the buildings for residential floors. So we have the hallway down here, which house families. Down here, all these rooms house families, anywhere from uh, one plus one. Uh, we have families as large as two plus eight. After Barry gets a key from a hallway monitor on the second floor... The residents aren't given keys, so when they come in, they have to be let into the room. He shows me a vacant room intended for two or three people. It's pretty spare, pretty basic. Unadorned, pale yellow walls, tiled linoleum floor, cots. Since I'm here on a Wednesday, that means it's room inspection day. Barry says the rooms are inspected every week. And what are you looking for? Oh, just the overall cleanliness of the room. Um, that is order. There's no food left in certain places because these are things that can cause, you know, rodents. That's why Barry says there's a weekly extermination service. But according to some residents... I don't like it. It's just real dirty, nasty in here. Major problems remain. They got mice, a lot of stuff, raccoons. 19-year-old Janisha Carter has been living in D.C. General for three months now. She says she's asked staff to address the problems she's seen. And they get real nasty with you. We have clients who've made the same kind of complaints, and we've also heard folks say they're being told if they complain too loudly, it will just get the shelter closed down and they'll be out on the street. Patty Malahi-Fougere is executive director of the Washington Legal Clinic for the Homeless. And she says, actually, before the city put the community partnership in charge of the shelter, it was run by Families Forward. And there were far worse problems than mice and raccoons. A couple of years ago, the scandal related to D.C. General was that security staff were trading juice boxes and blankets for sex with parents. So folks were feeling up against the wall in terms of wanting to provide for their children. And with that kind of pressure, it created this real terrible power dynamic. And I think that's something that the families are continuing to struggle with. But not all families, or so says 37-year-old Ernestine Little. She and her three kids came to D.C. General six months ago after being evicted from their apartment in southeast Washington. Well, I heard a lot of people talk about the shelter and what was wrong with the shelter. But it's not so bad. As long as you mind your business and continue doing what you do, then, you know, you won't be in a lot of mess. Little says she's used her time at D.C. General to get back on her feet. And today, actually, she's moving out. Her next step is to go back to school, and she hopes one day open a laundromat. And that, says Cornell Chappelle, deputy director of the Community Partnership for the Prevention of Homelessness, is what it's all about. We are giving um, um, a whole array of services, case management. We have a clinic on site. We have the Department of uh, Behavioral Health here. We have uh, connections with the schools. So primarily we're giving families the opportunity to have a place to stay, to become stabilized, and assisting them with moving on to more permanent housing. But the ultimate goal, he says, is for D.C. General to become more or less obsolete. What we would love is for everyone here to have an affordable housing, to move out, okay, and not have to come back. As to what will actually happen, well, it remains to be seen, as a growing number of city leaders are calling for D.C. General to be shut down. We'll hear more about the shelter's potential future later in the show. But first, we'll return to the past as we explore the history of this place that actually was never intended to be a homeless shelter. 
Until 2001, D.C. General was the city's public hospital. Hundreds of thousands of Washingtonians were born there, and many low-income residents entered its doors when they couldn't get help anywhere else. The hospital's history dates back to the very founding of the nation's capital, and for 200 years it was a place where good intentions collided against the harsh reality of underfunding and mismanagement. Jacob Fenston has the story. In the 1960s, D.C. General Hospital was, like many big city public hospitals, overcrowded and understaffed. We uh, had to turn away people all the time. It was a constant triage of who was the sickest and who needed the most and how could we manage that. Martin Shargle started working at D.C. General in the late 60s. In 1968. He was a young doctor finishing up his residency. The hospital was a mess. We had inadequate laboratory and x-ray services. We couldn't even find x-rays very often. It took sometimes days before people could locate files. Shargle started organizing fellow residents and interns. He became the president of the association representing them. They put together a report showing that compared to other local hospitals, D.C. General had half the staff doing twice the work. We decided to have what we called a heal-in. He led a peaceful rebellion of doctors and nurses. They would admit every patient who came in the door needing care, even though there wasn't room. The stretchers were lined up up and down the hall. They had no room assignments. This tactic caught the attention of reporters and politicians. Everybody agreed that care was inadequate. Everybody agreed that there was overcrowding. Everybody agreed there wasn't enough money. But he says things didn't change. It was uh, mostly puffery. Nothing happened as a consequence. Nothing substantial and material happened as a consequence. Promises, promises. If you are of any means whatsoever in, say, 1860, you would not come here. This is the worst place you could possibly come. This is Tim Krepp, a local tour guide and historian. He's talking here about the 1860s, 100 years before Martin Shargle was protesting conditions. Back then, a health board report called the hospital very primitive, a collection of wooden shanties, and declared charity under this guise becomes a curse. It's important to make that distinction between charity, which was to help folks, and this was to get them off the streets. This was because we don't want to look at poor people. We'll ship them off to a workhouse somewhere to get them out of the way. The hospital was founded in 1806, originally near Judiciary Square. In 1846, it was moved to its current location on what was then the edge of the city. Back in the 1840s, this wasn't the edge of anything. Back then, Krepp explains, hospitals were for poor people, people who couldn't afford to have a doctor come to their home. So the hospital was built out here on the city's outskirts, next to the jail and the workhouse. The workhouse, the jail, and the hospital. In the 18th century, in the 19th century, this would have been one function. You would have had a hard time telling who was down here because they were a criminal, who was down here because they were poor, and who was down here because they were sick and had no, no better options. By the end of the century, there were calls to close the dilapidated hospital and rebuild a modern facility away from the malaria-ridden banks of the river. It would be built on high land at 14th and Upshur Streets, amidst the new upper-middle-class neighborhoods popping up in northwest D.C. And the citizens of Piney Branch, of Petworth, of Parkview, all rose up in rebellion against it. So the hospital stayed put, but in 1922, it reopened in a new brick structure, replacing the old hodgepodge. The sturdy new building was rechristened Gallinger Municipal Hospital. 
But just 20 years later, it was a filthy place swarming with flies, according to witnesses at a U.S. Senate hearing. One senator read from a letter complaining that mice thrive on every floor and roaches, some of enormous size, infest every part of the hospital. In another rebranding effort, the name was again changed in 1953 to D.C. General. That hospital, D.C. General, was closed against the unanimous, the unanimous support of this council. You know, the council very rarely has unanimous votes. D.C. Council member Carol Schwartz during a 2002 mayoral debate on WAMU. In 2001, the hospital was closed amid public outcry by Mayor Anthony Williams. People say, well, if we move to this new health care system, people are going to die. And my answer is, ladies and gentlemen, people are already dying. We have a horrible life expectancy for African-American men, horrible statistics for diabetes, horrible statistics for HIV, AIDS. During the late 1990s, the much-maligned hospital was draining city coffers as the district struggled to get its finances under control. So the hospital would be replaced by an insurance scheme, the D.C. Health Care Alliance. The mayor said it would provide better primary care than the old hospital, and save money. What happens now is I go to D.C. General, I can go to D.C. General 10 times, but no one's really keeping track of me as a patient in a healthcare system. Closing a hospital in a poor community is like shutting the schools or closing a church. It is one of the great anchoring edifices of a community. Sarah Rosenbaum is a public health professor at George Washington University. She says the D.C. Healthcare Alliance has been a success. Our numbers rival the best numbers in the country. But Rosenbaum says that doesn't mean people can easily get care. The empty hospital left a big void in D.C.'s low-income neighborhoods. The fact of the matter is that the supply of healthcare professionals in the United States is distributed very unevenly. They tend to cluster where the money is. D.C. General dismissed its last patient on June 25, 2001. Just a year later, the doors were open again, a temporary solution for the city's growing homeless population. There were just 12 beds that first year. By 2010, the city had crammed some 200 families into a makeshift shelter designed for 135. Once again, overcrowding at D.C. General was making headlines. I'm Jacob Fenston. After the break... D.C. General through the eyes of a child. He's so used to to chaos and noise, and he's lost some of those natural reactions to stress. That's just ahead as our D.C. General edition of Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're focusing on the shelter that houses many of the district's homeless families, D.C. General. In just a bit, we'll hear about the lives of children at the shelter in southeast Washington and the challenges of educating them. But first, we'll meet a D.C. general resident who has children herself and who struggles daily to move beyond the confines of the city's most notorious shelter. 
Sherelle McGee has never had a stable home. When she was an infant in D.C., she landed in foster care and bounced from family to family until someone finally adopted her as a teenager. Until recently, McGee and two of her four children were living with McGee's adopted mother. But then her mother suddenly died, and McGee and her kids had nowhere to go. That was nearly six months ago. Today, McGee and her kids live at D.C. General, but as Lauren Ober tells us, they're determined to find an apartment they can call their own. It's an overcast Friday afternoon, and Sherelle McGee is getting ready to go on her weekly shopping trip to Target in Columbia Heights. Normally, McGee would catch the 96 bus from the D.C. Armory to 14th Street in Northwest. Then she would transfer to the 52 up to Columbia Heights. But today, she caught a ride along with her friend, Bree Archie. Yeah, I was coming to put, just to pick up a few things for the kids to eat. I come to Target because it's cheaper than a regular grocery store. I'm just coming to get the, like, their orders and noodles, um, some cookies, because they already got their chips and juice. Yeah, I do my shopping at Walmart. Yeah, there's more than Target. This is McGee's second trip of the day to Northwest. Earlier, she loaded two of her four children onto the 96 bus to take them to daycare. So that's all. I was just coming here to get the kids a couple of stuff and waste a little time until it's time to pick them up. The calculus of transportation is part of McGee's reality these days. Since moving to D.C. General last New Year's Eve, McGee's life has been spent trying to figure out how to get from here to there as cheaply as possible. McGee is 27 with short black hair and a relaxed manner. She's a graduate of D.C.'s Dunbar High School and the mother of four children. The two youngest, a rambunctious three-year-old named Amari, and Jamira, his four-year-old sister, live with McGee at the shelter. The two oldest, a 14-year-old and a 7-year-old, stay with relatives elsewhere. Giving her kids the stability she lacked growing up is McGee's sole focus. If you have it set in your mind that you're going to do it, then you'll be prepared for it. You're going to get up and go do it. But then if you get up, oh, I don't feel like it. I'm just going to stay here. You're not going to never get nothing done. McGee says at D.C. General, it's easy to get sidelined by drama created by other shelter residents. They miserable. You know, miserable love company. They just sit in there, oh, they don't do nothing with themselves. Talks about people. Talks about people. Starting fights. Yes. It's, it's so sad. Like when I just came from the Social Security building, I said, Bree, we got to go. What do you want to do? <laughs> we got to get out of here. Why? Why do you think people... Because they've been in there for too long. They're ready to go, so it's frustrating. It's frustrating, and they just go pick at another person in there because it's frustrating from being in there. But you have to learn how to deal with it and learn how to stay focused and learn how to stay, I don't know, focused and positive and just manage your business. How do you even do that? Stay the hell in your room. Sorry, but stay in your room. We have TVs in our room. That's what keeps me and my kids occupied, but somehow I still end up in the hallway, even like walking to the trash can or something. McGee's room at the shelter is generous. She pushed the mattresses together to make one big bed, and she and the kids snuggle there at night. But shutting yourself in a room is no way to live, so McGee is trying to be proactive. She wants to be the kind of mom who takes charge of her life. So I've been handling my business since I've been in the shelter. What does handling your business mean? I did my business is going out, getting myself up in the morning. Like I would sit there and say, Sheryl, you need to get up and go get your ID. Go get up and go get your social security card. 
get up and go, you know, go sit down these buildings and handle your business. So you could be out the building and have your stuff to get a job so you could be better and take care of your kids better. So that's what I did today. McGee is unemployed, and landing a job has been impossible, she says, because she doesn't have a valid ID. Her purse was stolen a year and a half ago, and it's been a clerical nightmare to get a new driver's license and Social Security card. She's close now, though. Her replacement Social Security card came last week. McGee says she's hoping to land a job at a new discount store coming to the Heckinger Mall in Northeast D.C., but what she really wants to do is cook. That's when I was younger. I said I wanted to be a lawyer. I went from a lawyer to a police officer. From a police officer, I said I wanted to be a cook. And I'm still sticking with a cook. I want to go to culinary art school. But I yep. don't have the time because I'm the only one that's taking care of the babies. Yeah. So I wouldn't have the time to. And there's the rub. As a mom who lives in a homeless shelter with two kids... It's tough for McGee to make headway on her dreams. Her days are spent filling out reams of paperwork, shopping for food, taking parenting classes, keeping her kids out of trouble, and trying to extricate herself from D.C. General. And a lot of her time is spent in transit. When McGee finally arrives at Target, she's focused. She and her friend Briarchi take a quick look at the bathing suits before heading to the grocery section. The shelter doesn't have facilities where residents can cook, and McGee's kids won't eat the prepared food there because it's gross, she says. So she buys them food they will eat. Cold cereal, microwavable mac and cheese, strawberry applesauce, and... Oodles and noodles. This is mainly their favorite meal. I buy three each. Chicken and beef. And I am done. That's all I'm getting for now. I'm moving out soon, so I need to save some. This is just for now until we move out. If all goes well, McGee and her kids will be set up in their own apartment soon, likely in one of the city's transitional housing units. McGee would like her new home to be closer to a store like Target, but she'd just be happy in a place she can call her own. I'm Lauren Ober. Turn now to the lives of D.C. General's youngest residents. As of this week, 513 kids reside within the shelter's walls. But many of them say the place they call home feels increasingly unsafe, especially after eight-year-old shelter resident Relisha Rudd disappeared. Tara Boyle visited D.C. General to find out how its many, many children cope with being homeless. If you're a child at D.C. General looking for places to play, you have a few options. There's a busted-up sidewalk littered with broken glass and trash just outside the shelter. Inside, you can try to find a corner in the cramped hospital room you share with your entire family. And then there's another option. We have our dress-up corner over there. We have our dollhouse there. If you go to the first floor, pass through heavy hospital doors, and make your way down a long, scuffed-up hallway, you'll find a series of brightly colored rooms. Art projects cover the walls, and everywhere you look, there are toys. 
Then over here, different parts of our play kitchen. The kids love making play food. Danielle Rothman and I are in one of the few spaces reserved for children at DC General. It's run by staff and volunteers from a nonprofit called the Homeless Children's Playtime Project. Rothman is the project's site manager. Our goals are really to provide a sense of stability and a place for children to experience normal child development while they're living amidst the chaos of homelessness. And speaking of chaos, it is about to descend on this space. It's almost 6.30 on a Tuesday evening, and kids and parents are lining up in the hallway. Playtime is about to begin. One minute. Two minutes. Two minutes. One of the first children to sign in is five-year-old Christian. The first thing he tells me, he likes sports. A lot. Football and basketball and baseball and soccer ball and tennis. He's also pretty interested in taking the microphone and interviewing me. How do you feel when you're in a coat? When I'm in a coat? Well, today I would feel very hot because it's very hot outside, right? Where do you where do you live? I live in Maryland. And then he asks this question. How do you how do you feel about the little girl Relisha? How do you feel about that little girl Relisha, he asks. He's referring to eight year old Relisha Rudd, who lived at this shelter before disappearing nearly three months ago. I know Relisha. She's my cousin. She's your cousin? How do you feel about her? I feel sad. How do you feel? Before he can answer, a volunteer across the room calls out to Christian, and he goes off to play. But questions about Relisha abound among the children here. Until recently, she was their playmate, a regular participant in this program. Did you you find that girl yet? You mean Relisha? Yeah. No, they did not find her yet. Why? I think they're looking really hard for her, but they haven't found her yet. Oh, you probably look for her everywhere. Upstairs in Playtime's preteen program, older kids also bring up Relisha. Nine-year-old Hassan says he used to play with Relisha and her siblings. Relisha, what do you think about that? Hassan has been living at D.C. General for a year and is eager to leave this place behind. Because it's all dirty and rats being here and... He, we gonna get a place soon, so it's sad because Relisha wasn't here to see her place yet. Even for kids who didn't know Relisha, they still, they're uncomfortable and they're a little scared because the situation isn't resolved. Heather Wade runs the Playtime Project's preteen program at D.C. General. She says counselors have come here to talk with young people about Relisha's disappearance. But the image of Khalil Tatum, the janitor who allegedly kidnapped Relisha, still haunts these children. I will never forget one of the girls in the preteen program walked up to me the day after and she said, she said, is Mr. Tatum going to take me too? And and it was just, it was heartbreaking to hear her say that and just heartbreaking to know that she didn't feel safe. Safety has been a long-running concern at D.C. General. So is the fact that there's no playground to serve the hundreds of children living on this sprawling campus. Jamila Larson, the executive director of the Playtime Project, says a playground is long overdue. I always get concerned every time I come up there, there are children running into the streets and, and not having any safe place to play other than the sidewalk. 
She says Pepco and other donors are eager to pay for a playground, and it could be built this summer. All they need is for the city to give the green light. Bibi Otero, the city's deputy mayor for Health and Human Services, agrees that kids at D.C. General need a better place to play. But whatever we build has to absolutely be um, well-supervised. Um, it has to be accessible in a way that the coming and going to the playground area is safe for children. Um, and uh, it has to, um, we have to take into consideration anything else that may be happening in that, on that uh, campus. Otero is one of several city leaders overseeing a review of how D.C. agencies handled the Relisha Rudd case. I ask her about that review and whether she's confident that D.C. General is a safe place for residents. I am. We're certainly not waiting for the recommendations. I don't think any of the agencies are waiting for the recommendations uh, to act. All of the agencies involved, I know that we have taken a close look at the security, at the security issues, and we've taken a close look at the policies. Back at D.C. General, it's after 8 p.m., and parents are returning to pick up their children from the Playtime Project. More than 50 kids, from infants to teens, took part in the program tonight. Danielle Rothman is pleased with how things went. I really just always find it kind of joyful because I think when the kids leave, you just really see how much of a wonderful time they had, and it feels like you've done something, and that's you've given somebody something that they deserve. But then we head outside to a very different scene. Small children and their parents stand around in the dark. A few yards away, several people are smoking pot. An ice cream truck sits at the curb, its cheery music making the scene all the more surreal. What Rothman wants, and what parents and city officials and the kids themselves all say they want, is for children here to feel safe and to be able to leave this place before it leaves a lasting imprint on their childhoods. I'm Tara Boyle. from the challenges kids face inside D.C. General to the ones they encounter when they leave the shelter for the day and go to school. Many of the children who stay at D.C. General attend Ketchum Elementary School in southeast D.C. In fact, nearly 30 percent of the student population there is homeless. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza talked with staff about the academic and behavioral difficulties these children experience, as well as what's being done to help them succeed Good morning, Tristan. Take your hood off inside. Principal Maisha Riddlesbrigger stands in the foyer of Ketchum Elementary School at 8.30 every single morning. Well, I think it's important to greet families. I think it's important that they see the principal, that they're greeted with a warm face, a good morning, a hello, because you never know what's happened before they come into the school building. The school is about two miles from D.C. General Shelter. Little children come up to Riddlesbrigger for a quick cuddle before they go to class. Bye. You're going to be late for school. She says many of these children have very unstable lives. When you're in a homeless shelter, there's a lot of things that as a child you definitely feel are out of control. And so as a school, we try to make this a constant. It isn't obvious which students here are homeless. And Julia Zahn, the social worker and homeless liaison at Ketchum, says that's the school's goal. 
Students wear uniforms, so there are no obvious differences. They have a very structured routine and all follow the same rules. For our children, having a sense of belonging in the school, having a place that they know is going to be the same every single day. They know they're going to get their hot meals here. They know that they're going to be able to look like everyone else. Knowing what it is that they can expect helps improve their behavior, make growth and gains on those academic tests. For homeless families struggling with immediate needs like food and shelter, school is not the first priority. A big challenge for this school is absenteeism. Many students come late or sometimes not at all. Step by step, and that's the same way you're going to do your explanation. Camille Townsend is the fifth grade teacher here. She says poor attendance is a problem and in turn hurts learning. You know, it's like, oh, well, they're just learning their ABCs or they're just learning how to count. I can teach them how to count at home. But there's the conceptual knowledge, the application that they're learning how to do in school, how to take those skills and link them with science and social studies and art and music. And they're not getting that. A University of Chicago study found homeless students were less likely to perform on grade level than classmates who weren't homeless. They were also twice as likely to be identified as needing special education, and a third had been held back a grade once. All these pressures mean teachers need to make time for more one-on-one instruction. Again, teacher Camille Townsend. It's definitely worrisome for you as a teacher. You really have to figure out how do I teach normally for everyone else, but then prepare to double back for that child. Denise, a young mother, lives at D.C. General with her two children, ages one and seven. She's almost two hours late in dropping off her first grader at school. We missed the first bus, and our second bus was a little late, so it took us a little longer to get here. She says she wants her son to do well in school, but it's hard living in a shelter. Sometimes he has dreams, bad dreams, and so he has... He'll want to sleep a little longer. Just because I, just because of we, we don't be as happy, you know. So. We're not as comfortable, you know, as normal people with a normal household. So it's a little harder because sometimes we have to, you know, we have to find the motivation. Denise is looking for a job and says this school is a huge help. She gets free bus tokens to bring him to school, staffers organize food drives every month, and parents can use computers to search for a job. But most of all, her son is taken care of. It makes him a little bit more happier because he's around more kids of his age. He, he loves his teacher. According to the National Center on Family Homelessness, children who are homeless show three times the rate of emotional and behavioral problems compared to non-homeless children. Teacher Camille Townsend says it just depends on the child. Some become more responsible, while others... I know of a particular student who tends to steal because there's this whole desire, like, I, I, I want to have my own set of things. There are some students who I know hoard food. Principal Riddlesbrigger says she worries most about children who withdraw from everyone. Friends and peers can be an amazing source of support because they can say, you know, I went through it before. This is what we did when we were at this shelter. But when you have a child that doesn't talk about it and that's bottling up their feelings inside, we never know what's going on and how we can help. Answering those questions, what's going on and how to help, has become increasingly important at this school. Julia Zahn, the homeless liaison at Ketchum, says five years ago she was helping two students with transportation. 
Now I have over 50 homeless students receiving transportation assistance. That tremendous jump has a couple of different potential reasons behind it, one of which is the number of homeless families in the city is in fact growing. The other piece is also awareness of the services available. She opens a large closet. So this is where we keep our extra supplies. So here's just a few winter coats that are left over from our district today. Over here we have some extra uniform pants. Again, backpacks, backpacks, backpacks. Zan works with about 20 different community partners. Just about a month ago, a community partner was coming in to do another project, and they said, is there anything else you need? I knew right away underwear. Nicole Lee Mwanda oversees homeless programs for D.C.'s traditional public school system. She says every year the numbers of homeless children increase. Currently, for our homeless student population, it's about 5% of the total student population. But... In my heart, I strongly believe that there are many, many students that go unidentified because of the stigmas around homelessness. Lee Mwanda says staff is doing the best they can with the resources they have, but it's still very limited. And that's the hard part when homeless liaisons have to select how many families out of the abundance of families that they're going to be able to help. For school staff on the front lines, The fear is the issues these children deal with are much bigger than what can be addressed during the hours they're at school. I'm Kavita Cardoza. Partial support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In a minute, many people say D.C. General should go. But what would happen next? If the city closes D.C. General down without alternatives, we're going to have an even greater crisis. That and more is coming up on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And this week we're taking an inside look at D.C. General, the city's shelter for homeless families. We've already explored the D.C. general of the past and the present, and in this next segment, we'll look ahead toward its future. Martin Ostermule brings us this story on the political push to close D.C. general and what may happen to families living there if the shelter shuts its doors. If you think there's any debate about the future of D.C. general as a homeless shelter for families, think again. I I certainly believe that D.C. general is no place for families and children to be raised. Everybody has agreed that D.C. general is not a good place for a homeless shelter. That was Mayor Vincent Gray and D.C. Council Chair Phil Mendelson, the city's two most powerful leaders. And that's just a small sampling. Council members Anita Bonds, Kenyon McDuffie, David Grosso, And Jim Graham all told me they'd like to see D.C. General closed, as would most homeless and housing advocates. But agreeing to shutter the shelter is the easy part. What to do with the families in it is more complicated. That's because while a shelter is easy to empty, finding homes for the homeless in a city that has grown more expensive isn't so easy. Here's Patty Fougere, the director of the Washington Legal Clinic for the Homeless. If we take D.C. General offline, if the city closes D.C. General down without alternatives... I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to have an even greater crisis next winter than we faced in 2013. This message isn't lost on Graham, who represents Ward 1 on the D.C. Council. He says he'll soon introduce a bill formally calling for D.C. General's closure, but not until the city provides alternatives for the families in it. And those would include the availability of other small-scale emergency shelter for the hypothermia season, appropriate apartments for families, 
identified in sufficient numbers. Uh, and then, of course, assuring ourselves that the mayor's 100-day, 500-family plan is working. And because if that's not working, then we have a whole different problem. Graham is referring to Mayor Gray's plan, unveiled in April, to work with landlords to find homes for 500 families within 100 days. But even Gray admits it's not going as planned. In a letter sent to Mendelssohn in late May, he said only 99 families had been placed in housing. At that pace, he said, the initiative won't reach its goal by the end of the 100 days, on July 11th. Activists say there's also a much broader problem, the rapid decline in affordable housing in D.C. Here's Patty Fougere again. We have a serious lack of affordable housing in the District of Columbia, and it has come to crisis proportions. People need a safe and decent, affordable, long-term, permanent place to be. And when they don't have that, they end up languishing in these makeshift solutions. Housing! Housing, which is intimately related to? Everything. For weeks, housing advocates and residents have been walking the halls of the Wilson Building, hoping to convince legislators to put more money into programs that help low-income residents find housing and pay the rent. Over the last two years, Mayor Vincent Gray has committed over $100 million to a fund aimed at preserving and building affordable housing. But Jenny Reed of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute says there isn't any new money for programs that could help D.C. general families get out. Right now, the budget for homeless families is Uh, projected to be 20% lower than it is in the current fiscal year. And we don't expect to see a 20% decline in the need of homeless families next year. Even with some last-minute funding changes made by the D.C. Council this week, including money for more case managers at D.C. General, Reed says the money needed for homeless families is still down relative to last year. For Councilmember Jim Graham, that lack of funds and the slow start to Gray's housing campaign mean that D.C. General may remain open through another winter, if not longer. If we don't muster the will to marshal the resources, it'll get filled up again. It'll get filled up again because once these empty rooms are sitting there and there's a blizzard in January or February and there are families with no place to go, we'll begin to fill it up out of necessity. Bibi Otero, the city's deputy mayor for Health and Human Services, is trying to tamp down on expectations that D.C. General will close this year, even though that's what she'd like to see. The key is that we have to do it responsibly. The key is that we have to do it so that um, the alternatives are 10 times better than what we currently have. Uh, And so that may take it a little bit of time. She's working hard on Gray's 500 Families, 100 Days campaign, but says it's not something she'll be able to do alone. We would really um, encourage anyone who has rental units, large or small landlords across the city, to reach out to us. And if we do not have landlords come in and, and offer up the spaces, we, we run a, a, a huge risk of not family, fi- finding housing for families. And if that housing isn't found, D.C. General may remain, at least for now, the only home available to hundreds of families that have nowhere else to go. I'm Martin Ostermule. Over the past hour, we've met people and families who've spent time at D.C. General and want nothing more than to get out. Well, we'll wrap up today's show with someone who wants to go back. D.C. native Tamika Smalls once stayed at the shelter. These days, she's making do in the cheapest motel rooms she can find, sharing the space with her husband and four of her six children. 
Small says landing a room in D.C. General might be her best hope for stability. But for some of her family members, the idea of entering the shelter is more like a nightmare. Jonathan Wilson brings us the story. So how long you been here? Um, about third week. Third week? All right. Tamika Smalls leads me into the closest thing to home she has right now, a motel room in Jessup, Maryland. A toddler, two-year-old Shamaya, is laying half asleep on one of the two full beds in the room. Another of her daughters, 13-year-old Shakela, sits on the other bed and smiles sheepishly at me as Smalls and I sit down. Finding a space to sit is a challenge, and walking around is just about out of the question. Every corner of the room is stacked with laundry bags full of clothes. Our room is basically this, um, a, a little bigger than two walk-in closets, basically, with a bathroom. Seven months ago, Small says, a dispute with her landlord forced her and her family out of their house. She says she's looked for a new place to fit her large family without any luck. And a steady job, which would help her afford unsubsidized housing, isn't really an option for her either, partly due to a laundry list of medical problems. Congestive heart failure, COPD, um, chronic asthma, lumbar disc disease, um, and also severe, uh, well, moderately severe sleep apnea. At one time it was severe, but I got the gastric bypass and um, it helped some of my health problems, but they're not totally gone. And so that means right now she's cobbling together disability checks to pay for the cheapest weekly hotel rates she can find online, even if that means they bring her and her family nearly an hour outside the city, like this room in Jessup. I got it on, um, I think, Hotels.com, no, Hotwire. So it was uh, $455 for this week. It keeps going up. So Sunday is checkout day. If I try to get this room again, it'll probably be $65, $70 a day, which is going to take it up to over $500. And I don't know where that money is coming from. But it's the younger members of the family, like 13-year-old Shakela, who may be suffering the most without a home. How are you feeling about, like, how your mom's surviving and how you're surviving? Are you feeling all right? No. No. Uh, I want my friends to come over and stuff. No. But they can't come over because we're in a hotel and there's a lot of people in here. So they're always asking me to come over, but I say no because I have something to do and I don't. Tamika seems at least aware of Shakela's sadness, but she worries most about her two-year-old Shamaya and her three-year-old boy, Azira, who has yet to spend a night in a crib. Children don't ask to come here. All they ask for is a place to stay, food to eat, and clothes to wear. And right now, I feel like the biggest failure even though they have somewhere to temporarily stay, it's not home. For all those reasons, some part of Smalls is hoping a room in D.C. General will miraculously open up, and it might really take a miracle. Smalls says she's been told D.C. General isn't accepting new families. D.C. General is not the best of places, but it's somewhere where I wouldn't have to worry about, am I going to be able to come up with another three, $400 to stay? Um, are we going to have something to eat, or can I go out to get something to eat, and do I have enough left? in my account to get us something to eat. GC General at least would have been a place where we could say, okay, we might not be there all day, but we can at least come one place and lay our head. But within minutes, Smalls wavers on whether spending time in D.C. General would help or hurt her family. Sometimes it seems just like another bad option in a life without any good ones. Just the thought of even having to go back there, I'm like, I appreciated it, but I'm praying that another door opens up, another way opens up. And I'm praying for all those families that something is done where they don't have to live like that. 
Small's husband, Horatio Price, the father of her two youngest children, has even stronger feelings about D.C. General. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't send a dog there. 55-year-old Price is currently homeless as well. He says COPD and seizures keep him from holding down a steady job, and he shares motel rooms with the rest of the family. He agrees that stability would be good for the children, but he's heard enough about D.C. General to know that he couldn't do it. I'd rather sleep out on the street, just like I said. I'd rather go in the woods and actually set up a camp than to sleep in there because there's far more rats in there than there is out there on, in a camp. Horatio's strong words catch even Tamika off guard. We discussed it, but I didn't know he was that passionate about it. I'm like, oh my. She herself seems to change her mind about D.C. General two or three more times during our conversation. So I'm looking for a home right now. Uh, my, my mind is get us somewhere stable beyond D.C. Yeah. General. And once or twice, she seems to reflect on the role her own choices have played in leading her and her family to their current situation. What would you say to those people who hear your story and say, oh, well, you know, she's just not trying hard enough or she's just not, you know, uh, you know, she had too many kids, it's her fault. What do you say to those people? I say to those people, just like anybody else, I have a dream. And sometimes the dreams don't go the way we plan. And yes, I do have six children. Three are grown and three are, you know, under 18. But I haven't asked you to do anything for them. I'm not coming to you say, oh, I want to check or I want more food stamps or anything. I'm saying, help me help myself. There's the big dilemma. Tamika and many like her aren't sure what that help should look like. But her life and the lives of her children are reminders that figuring out a plan to address homelessness in D.C. isn't just an academic or political problem. I'm Jonathan Wilson. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Lauren Ober, Jonathan Wilson, Kavitha Cardoza, Tara Boyle, and Martin Ostermule. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. And a hearty welcome to our new intern, Julie Alderman. Julie, we are thrilled to have you on board. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. This week's theme song, Homecoming, is by Eric Shimalonis from Winter Passing. We have information on all the music we use on metroconnection.org. Just click a story for information on its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection or by subscribing to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll spend an hour on land, air, and sea. We'll hear about efforts to map Earth's last unknown territory, the ocean floor. We'll meet daredevil wingwalkers in Virginia. And we'll tag along with animal rescuers as they help out baby birds who couldn't quite take wing. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. <laughs>